Leanne Rhymes once stole his words, and we will get to the bottom of it. Stay tuned for our chat with poet Ian Thomas. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Welcome to Book Circle Online. I'm your host, Fern Ronay, and we're joined in the studio by the celebrity's favorite poet, Ian Thomas. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. You've come from afar, from South Africa. So yes. You must be tired, but you're on a book tour, and you've got to keep the energy up. So. Yeah, no, <laughs> you, you just kind of accept that you're going to be tired the whole time you're on it. I think last week I did Chicago, uh, Austin, Boston, um, and then here, flying here, like one night after another. Wow. So, yeah, I just, you know, yeah. I mean, night one, I kind of walked in and I was full of energy and I was wearing a suit. And by the end of it, I'm just going to kind of stumble <laughs> in in a bathrobe, I think. But, well, yeah. tomorrow night, you, they could, viewers and listeners can see you in a bathrobe <laughs> at, <laughs> you're doing a reading tomorrow night down, yes. in downtown LA. Yes, so, at the okay. last bookstore mm-hmm. at 7.30 okay. p.m. And okay. it's going to be amazing. I love reading in L.A. I've done it once or twice before. And I've read at the last bookstore before, and it's always an incredible experience. It's probably one of the coolest bookstores in the world. Nice. So Is it the one that has kind of books stacked in a certain yeah. way? Where it's, yeah. a, it's very Instagram-worthy. So no, people... <laughs> I, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's beautiful. You know, New yeah. York has The Strand, and Portland mm-hmm. has, has Powell's, and mm-hmm. L.A. has the last bookstore. And it's, it's so beautiful. Nice. So um, we will get to Leanne Rhymes, but I, I have to say, <laughs> uh, and we're here to discuss Every Word You Cannot Say, which is your wonderful book, which sure. I loved. Thank you. Um, but I have to say, I never thought I would utter this sentence in my life, mm. let alone doing book research. But um, what do Steven Spielberg, Khloe Kardashian, and Ariana Huffington have in common? <laughs> they are all fans of yours. Sure. So Ariana Huffington quoted you in her book. She quoted me in Thrive, um, and she's quoted me before in um, a few commencement speeches. Um, And she's an incredibly wonderful, nice person. I've had some contact with her emails backwards and forwards. And, and yeah, I was flabbergasted when that happened uh, I, that happened I'm but I'm flabbergasted every single time it does happen every now and again someone will quote me and I'll see they'll have like you know two or three million followers and I'll have to go and ask my wife who they are because <laughs> I, I just don't know <laughs> so she's yeah. the celebrity well she watches the shows culture. and she knows and I don't I just you know so did she know who Chloe was I'm yes. sure. <laughs> yeah, no. she, well, people know who the Kardashians are in Africa. We, we, we keep up. <laughs> They've gone worldwide. Yeah, I know. They're That's everywhere. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, like I said, I love the book. There were mm. so many points where I thought, um, yes, I have thought that, and it's on paper. Mm. And there are times where I thought, that is so true, but I've never thought that before. Mm. But I was amazed. And one of those what, one of those moments was this passage. Would you mind sure. reading it? Yeah. Thank you. I don't know your name, but I do know that it was beautiful to your mother, and that the first time she said it and decided it was yours, she smiled. I know she said it several times after that, like the words to a beautiful song only she knew. She tried it on like a beautiful summer day. I do not know what you do for money, but I do know that sometimes, whatever it is, it's difficult. I do not know whether you are rich or poor, But I do know that regardless of how much money you have in the bank or how big your house is, 
Numbers have never stopped the world from intruding on happiness. And sometimes, things are hard. Thank you. Sure. I love it. I um, read this and I saw my mother, who I have a great relationship with my mother, but I mm. saw my mother in a whole new way. Mm. I saw her as someone who didn't know me yet, yeah, yeah, yeah. but who was rolling around my name, which my name is actually Jennifer. And it, <laughs> for every kid born in the 70s and growing up in the 80s, there were yeah. 50 million Jennifers. And my yeah. maiden name is Fern Nicola, so that's how I got the nickname Fern. And, and mm. I, it was all meant to be because I love my nickname. But um, they thought Jennifer, and so did a lot of other mothers, yeah. was a beautiful name. And it made me see her differently. I love this thought. And did you always think of these things when you were growing up? No, I mean, this is this is based off the fact that, you know, um, when I started writing poetry online, I, I was about 26 years old. And so I was writing about the things that kind of confront you when you're when you're when you're 26, which are, you know, different relationships and, you know, trying to figure out who you are in the world. And and now I'm not 26. Um, I have two kids and I know from naming our own kids that there is this kind of process you go through where you're like. Is he a Dave? You know, is he a Jake? Is he a Jack? You know, <laughs> like, 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 who is he? And 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 as soon as you, it it clicks. Um, you know, for for our daughter Evelyn. Um, oh, that's pretty. Yeah, and so it was originally Evie, and, and as soon as my my wife said Evie for the first time, we both kind of looked at each other and knew. And my wife said Evie, you know, a few times, and it was like it, it couldn't be any other name. And, you know, we we kind of looked at different ones and, and played with them and you, we couldn't get this one name out of our head. And she, now she couldn't be anyone else, right. you know. So, you know, I mean, as you go through life, you kind of pick up these experiences and you turn them into poetry, you mm-hmm. know, um, which is your job as a poet, I guess. So when you were growing up, um, I know you were bad at math and science. Oh, yeah. It <laughs> comes from your own writing. Yeah. Um, but that's okay, because um, I really appreciated... I thought the... you were about to slide a test across the table. <laughs> In 30 seconds or yeah. less, yeah. some division. Um, but I know that I, I really appreciated the where you... I read all of your Huffington Post blog posts, sure. and, um, and I love them, and everyone should read your book and read those, and I look forward to reading your first book as well, mm. um, where you describe that it's okay to, it, basically, it's okay to be bad at math and science, mm. and that to be good at what you are. So the next Hemingway could be flipping burgers, but if yeah. we all had the, we all had the guarantee that there'd be a roof over our heads, mm. there'd be more Hemingways, there'd be more people who were sure. living their passion, and I so appreciate that. Did you know that you were creative not that people who are good at math and science are creative but that you were the that you were creative when you were young no um i grew up in a very left-brained household so my dad had a a doctorate in foreign accounting i'm I'm still not sure what that is um (laughs) my brother was arrested by interpol at the age of 16 for hacking into belgium's telephone network um, and were your parents proud or horrified? Or both? Oh, they had no <laughs> idea what was going on. We just had some computers running in a back room in the house, and one day Interpol rocked up at the, the front door with a search warrant. And <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, so that was pretty intense. Um, I was about—I think I was about fourteen at the time when that happened. Um, but you know, I because I grew up in that environment, and I went to a school that you know put a lot of um, focus 
on things like you know maths and science and sport and um, and that kind of thing, I I didn't really appreciate the fact that I had something um, and that it made me a bit different. I you know I, I it's a weird kind of struggle. Are you creative because you're different, or are you different because you're creative? You know, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, I mean I've. I've always been somebody who writes. I've been writing since I was a kid. And it's always just been strange to me because I grew up assuming that everyone around me wrote as well, Mm -hmm. that everyone had journals and diaries and and things like that and wrote poetry. And, and, you know, of course, you go to high school and your friends are like, no, dude, you're the only one writing poetry. And you hide the journals. Yeah, very quickly. Um, so you did journal and you did write as yeah. a child. Okay. Yes. Okay. I, I found one of my old ones the last time I was I was visiting my mom um, when we were packing up the, the house and you know we stayed in the same house for like forty years, and um, and so I found this and it was it was terrible. It, it was it was, was terrible. It poetry or some of it was poetry, uh-huh. yeah, but it was it was very. You know, I mean, I think it's a lesson for for everyone that no one is born being good mm-hmm. at anything, mm-hmm. you know. And people often ask me, you know, for advice. And I say, you just have to keep writing, you mm-hmm. know, because it's the same as anything else. Right. You just get better at it the more you do. Right. Yeah. Um, I've found old journals. Of, I've journaled periodically through the years and I found old ones and been mortified and thrown them out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I read that if you're... You're denying a part of yourself, or you're if, until you are. I yeah, I, I I agree with you. I appreciate the kid who mm-hmm. who wrote the stuff. There there was a very there was a very hilarious um, line in it uh, where it was something like, "If you're reading this and you're 40 years old and you have a nine to five job, you should kill yourself." Oh you know, God. like like this very angry young man like writing wow. a, about rebellion and mm-hmm. you know uh, and that kind of thing and i was like wow okay <laughs> <laughs> but i like the way you phrase it that that kid like so yeah. i say like i'm not the same person i was 2 weeks ago yeah keep growing yeah so yeah it's good to look at yourself as that that wasn't me that was me technically sure i do try and keep promises to him mm-hmm. you yeah. know like, like i you what? know like um a few years ago metallica came and played in south africa and South Africa doesn't get a lot of bands. And I didn't really care that much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 14-year-old me would have wanted to go. <laughs> so I said, okay, Aww. I will take you. Oh, <laughs> I love it. And I, I think you must try and keep those promises. They're like, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. That's great. Hmm. I did go to a New Kids on the Block concert. That's amazing. That's great. You see, keeping your promises. Right. To my younger self. Growing up in South Africa, um, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but you wrote mm. a great piece about the flag on Dylan Roof's um, jacket. jacket. Mm. He's the Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina um, shooter. shooter. Yeah. Um, and you compared your childhood to that of the average German citizen when mm. the Nazis were in power. Mm. Um, as a kid, how was it explained to you? It's, it isn't explained to you. Because there is no particular moment at which you are taken aside and said, this is what's going on around you. You take everything for granted. Mm-hmm. You, you know, if there's one thing you learn very quickly um, when you have kids, it's, it's that kids will accept whatever you tell them is normal as normal, mm-hmm. you know. So growing up in apartheid era South Africa, going to a whites only school, you know, there wasn't a particular moment uh, where someone 
took you aside and said, listen, we have this systemized brutality, this systemized oppression um, going on. You just assume things are normal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you 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 watch um, American sitcoms and soap operas like Dynasty or, mm -hmm. you know, Three's Company and your lives don't seem that different. You don't you mm -hmm. don't you don't realize what's going on. And um, at some point when I was a kid, um, I I remember the school was uh, transitioning to what was called the Model C format. So Model C was the system whereby the schools were slowly starting to become integrated again. Mm -hmm. And I remember a kid turning to me and, and saying effectively, we're going to have to watch it with the racist jokes. Mm -hmm. And I... I looked at him and I, you know, I must have been like 11 or 12 at, at, at that point mm -hmm. in time. And something inside me clicked and said, but why would we do that? If, is there something wrong with what we're doing? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, but you right. don't realize because you're a kid. And, um, you know, I think one of the really big tragedies of kind of contemporary South Africa is we were never shown a lot of the news footage that was shown around the world about mm -hmm. what was going on. There was a, a very tightly contro controlled propaganda machine. And there was never a point at which, you know, the broadcaster said, okay, no one saw what was going on. This is what happened, mm -hmm. you know, in these places, in the townships and things like that. Because I think that there's a lot of South Africans who haven't really come to terms with what happened in the country. Still. Still, yes. absolutely. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mindset within some communities that, you know, people should move on from apartheid. Mm -hmm. But it's 20 years ago. It's, right. it's not a long time. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a very recent thing. And perhaps if those people saw what was going on, mm -hmm. they would treat it with more sacredness mm -hmm. in terms of the, the, the tragedy, the, the, the catastrophe that it was. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a very strange place to grow up without knowing it was strange. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that at, it was 11 or 12 because that's such a tender age to have this light bulb go off. Like, are we doing something wrong? Yeah. Yeah. That's in, in you, 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 you wake up one day and you realize you are the Nazis, effectively. Right. And it's crazy. And, yeah. and there's similar stories of, you know, after World War II, then people learned about the Holocaust. And sure. so I wonder if their children were asking them, why didn't you do anything? They yeah. They say we didn't know. And the same, with, if well, you weren't seeing it on TV. Sure. There is there there is that that thing where I mean also people believe what they want to believe mm -hmm. and you know, it's easier to believe that the country is fine and what you're doing is fine mm -hmm. than to actually confront the the horror of what of, of what's going on mm -hmm. um, and it, it was a huge influence on my writing I mean a lot of people might look at my writing um, and say it's apolitical that it doesn't really um, you know, deal with any kind of politics. But for me, growing up in that environment, I looked at what I could write about in terms of what I could access culturally or creatively. And there wasn't a lot I wanted to. Hmm. You know, I didn't want to write about my experience of growing up in apartheid. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, all over the, all over the world, and, and especially at that point in time, we were very concerned with who and we still are who a person is, where they come from, what they sound like, what they look like. And so my approach to my poetry was always, I will write what is 
true as far as I can tell for every human. Mm -hmm. I will try and write something for the person reading it that will resonate with them mm -hmm. no matter who they are or where they're from. Um, and so it's a direct product of growing up within that environment. Oh, that's an interesting way to look at it because I yeah. felt like it was very, yes, very non-political, very um, human at the core. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you where yeah. you've lived or how you grew up. These are words that everyone's felt. Sure. It's yeah. a human experience. Yeah. But I, you know, I mean, I think a criticism I get back home from the literary community there is that it doesn't feel like South African work. And yet mm. it is South African purely by its lack of, of South Africanness. Exactly. Mm. Um, growing up in, in South Africa, you, um, well, okay, so you didn't, I, I was thinking, how does someone, what was his, you know, childhood like? And then how did he decide to become a poet? But you didn't. <laughs> you went to no, advertising college. I, I, I never decided to be <clears throat> a poet. Um, I, I wrote poetry, I guess you could call it that. Um, and, and, you know, to go back to what was going, going on in my childhood with my, with my brother being heavily involved in computers, um, he was always interested in the, um, you know, the technological aspect of it, mm -hmm. like how things worked and the mechanics of it. And I was always fascinated by what I would call the almost spiritual side of what was then slowly becoming the internet mm -hmm. um, in like, you know, 94, 95, 96, around there. Mm -hmm. And um, because back then you would go on the internet just to talk to a stranger. You would go and just go into a chat room and just talk to people just because of the sheer novelty of talking to somebody, mm -hmm. which was crazy. And it's crazy now. Mm -hmm. you, you'd, now you'd never talk to a stranger on the internet. <laughs> right, <laughs> you'd try crazy. not to. <laughs> um, but uh, I was always, and that never left me, that fascination of the person on the other side of the screen and what do you have in common and they're a stranger but mm -hmm. you're talking to them and there's something, there's always been something in, intrinsically magic and spiritual in, in terms of that, 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 that relationship. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't feel like I had much of a future when I, when I left high school. I kind of knew I was creative, but I didn't feel like creative people had careers. It mm -hmm. wasn't something that I was, I was exposed to. We didn't have friends of the family who were painters or art, you know, artists or writers. And so the safest thing for me to do, you know, as near as I could tell was advertising. So I went and um, I studied that and I started off and had a very successful career. I won lots of awards. Um, I worked, you know, uh, in Cape Town in Johannesburg. I worked in Amsterdam for a while, here in L.A. for, for a little while. Um, and... And then so one day um, I went back to my hometown to go visit my parents. Um, I was about 26 years old. I just bought this brand new car with my advertising money. <laughs> and I drove past my old high school and um, I saw my old art teacher walking out of the, the school. And, you know, I went to a very authoritarian school mm -hmm. um, and none of the teachers really felt like they had much faith in me or mm. saw me as anything more than someone who was just kind of passing through. But look at you now. Look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he had this degree of faith in me and he kind of took me under his wing and, um, and made me trust an authority figure. How serendipitous that you would run into him. So, yeah, so yeah. I, and um, I, I saw him walking to his car, and his car 
is one of, was one of those cars that's kind of made up of bits of other car where mm-hmm. you know like the one door is rusted off and there <laughs> it's got the wrong color back door and <laughs> and, um, and I, I felt strange you know mm-hmm. that I'd done as well as I'd done mm-hmm. at that point in my life mm-hmm. and I, I kind of stopped and, and, and got out and started speaking to him and um, and he spoke about his life and where he was and he was worried about retiring um, he didn't think he'd be able to and um, and we, we spoke for about five or ten minutes and I, I kind of walked away from that conversation with this idea that life was incredibly unfair, that this person who had had so much compassion for me hadn't been rewarded by the world, you mm-hmm. know, for it in some, right. in some way. And I had, you know, uh, working in advertising. And so in that moment, I had this idea of writing for other people rather than writing for myself. And that became a blog called I Wrote This For You. Okay. Um, and my... my it was also a reaction to the ad industry because the ad mm-hmm. industry is a very egotistical place. Mm-hmm. It's always about what award have you just won? Who are you working for? Um, you know, what big campaign are you doing? Mm-hmm. And so I decided I would write about the reader. I would write nothing about myself. Mm-hmm. I would write just about the person reading it. And um, and so, yeah, I had a, a friend um, in Japan named John who had just started taking these photographs. Oh, okay. I was going to say, because I remember reading that yeah. you wrote to accompany the photograph. Well, I, I, I started what I thought was like a kind of weird literary experiment. Mm-hmm. And they felt a, the little blog posts felt strange without having a, a photograph mm-hmm. next to them. They felt like they needed something. And so John said, yes, you can use this photograph. And I asked him the day after that and oh, the day okay. after that. And so that's been going on now since 2007. Nice. Uh, we've never met. He, he, oh, isn't that funny? Yeah. So he lived in Japan. He's now. a stranger in the computer who you're yeah, friends with. <laughs> yeah. And he's great. He's, um, he, he's, he's hilarious. Um, but yeah, he lived in Germany. Now he lives in... Uh, no, he lived in Japan. Now he lives in Germany. And so, yeah, we've collaborated on all the I wrote this few books. And uh, we've just never been in the same country at the same time. Nice. So I misunderstood. I thought that he had had a photography blog. And he was like, oh, can you write something to go along with it? No, no. But you were writing like you explained for the reader. Yeah. Not so, you know, egotistical as advertising for the reader. And that's what became. Okay. Sure. That's nice. Mm. And um, why did you start with a pen name? I kind of wanted to get out of the, the way of the idea. And I figured I could make it more powerful by calling myself, please find this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was another way to remove my ego from the process Mm -hmm. completely. Okay. And so I wrote with a a pseudonym and under a pen name for a while. And then as the blog blog became more and more popular, I started getting these messages from people. um, And they were treating me kind of like a guru Uh or a Buddha you know, or, or some kind of person with some magical insight into their lives. And it made me feel really uncomfortable. Mm. And it made the relationship between me and the reader feel very imbalanced. Mm-hmm. And so at some point I said, this is unfair. This, you know, hiding mm-hmm. behind a mask of some kind, hiding behind a pseudonym doesn't, I want people to know I'm a human being, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I said, I'm Ernest Thomas, I'm this guy in Cape Town, South Africa, like sorry, to, revealing himself. sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it would have been made more creative sense to maintain the pseudonym and and, and keep it going. But it, it, you know, I mean, people respond so emotionally mm-hmm. to to what I do. It didn't feel 
fair or mm-hmm. real not to just go this is who i am yeah. and this is this is who i am as a human being it's very kind of you because in the way you describe it because it took the ego out where i i my assumption was that it was all about ego in the sense that if this is not very good <laughs> no yeah. my name's not attached to it sure sure but yeah. then it was it's really the opposite and that's yeah. so nice yeah. um so when did leanne rhymes steal your words <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I was wondering when we were going to get to that. Had to put her in her place. <laughs> I, I, what you wrote was great because you were I, very self-aware. Yeah, I, I don't feel like I would, I, I viciously attacked her or, or anything. <laughs> I was just so Leanne. There's a one of my most famous poems. Um, it, you know, uh, got put up at a makeshift memorial at the Boston bombing. Um, it was, it was read recently at. Um, a memorial in uh, in Britain, attended by you know Prince Charles, um, and it gets tattooed on people all the time. And it's incredible, and it's so funny because I I was doing my research and I loved it, and I posted it on mm. Instagram. And someone said, and uh, no, and oh. then I was reading the Leanne Rhymes story, and I was like, oh, yeah. this so is the one. The, yes. the, the poem it's very short. It's called the Fur, and if I can remember it correctly, it goes. Be soft. Don't let the world make you hard. Don't let the bitterness steal your sweetness. Take pride that even though the rest of the world may disagree, you still believe it to be a beautiful place. So it's this very short thing. But because I wrote under a pseudonym for a long time, um, I think people started wanting to quote some of the things that I was doing. And one day someone said, well, this is Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds a little like he was yeah. he was mis. He was mis. Uh, what's the word? Like misquoted as having yeah. written that. Yeah, I um, mean it's it's high praise. SPF I mean, thing like where sunscreen it was called. Yeah, yeah. he got he, mm-hmm. he got credited for that as well. Um, and so she found some meme with the poem on it, mm-hmm. credited to him, and then posted it onto Instagram. And some of my readers were, you know, rightfully upset <laughs> and, and messaged me, and I got angry immediately. Um, <laughs> Which is ironic, considering the text of the poem. Um, <laughs> but I, I went onto Instagram, and I, I can't remember exactly what I, I, I wrote. But I was like, you know, please credit me, mm-hmm. um, because it's kind of the business model of a lot of contemporary poets: is you kind of put these things out into the world, mm-hmm. and you hope people find them, um, and you know, find your books, mm-hmm. you know, and and so if someone takes something of yours and doesn't credit it mm-hmm. or miscredits it, it's you know, it's a bit of a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got to be infuriating. I mean, it's, yes, it's still a beautiful world, but that's infuriating. I've described it as like someone taking your soul and wearing <laughs> it like a hat to a party. Uh, Not right. <laughs> very, very uncomfortable. Um, and uh, and yeah, and so she, you know, she didn't, you know, rightly or wrongly go, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, let me correct mm. this. She said, no, this is a Kurt Vonnegut poem, and. I said, no, here it is in the book that I wrote. Mm -hmm. And she kind of pushed back and I pushed back against her. And I discovered that there's like a whole bunch of people out in the world who just don't like Leanne Rhymes, (laughs) which was bizarre for me to find. But they they hooked onto this immediately. And suddenly there was this army that came out of nowhere (laughs) and uh, and started attacking her for this. And... um, and it, it went on for days. Oh, that's uncomfortable. It was terrible. And then eventually I had to say to people, just stop. Because yeah. she'd actually messaged me and, and said, look, you know, clearly you're right and I, I am sorry. And yeah. she, was clearly, she was clearly a wonderful person. Yeah. And, um, 
but these people just carried on and I, I, I eventually just said look just stop and then they turned yeah. on me oh dear um, it's the dark side of the internet yeah and uh, and then of course it ended up in the, the daily mail um, <laughs> where the news goes to die if I remember correctly <laughs> um, but but yeah um, and it was it was a very bizarre interaction yeah but I get those things yeah. sometimes the, the other one was Harry Styles where uh-huh. I had a reader um, who was a huge fan of mine and a huge uh, fan of his um, meet him at some sign-in or something like that and shove my book into his <laughs> hand and so he was just like walking around with the book and you know for three or four days after that there were tens of thousands of people going the new book Harry's reading is called I wrote this for you <laughs> Um, so I was like, okay, I love the internet. that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a prediction. People are going to be hopefully, I don't want to say stealing, but quoting from every word you cannot say mm. and hopefully giving you credit. I hope uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> and this is another one of the, um, passages, if you don't mind reading. Sure. This. Do we call them stand? What do you call them? I call them fragments. Okay. And, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a strange thing. Um, the, um, because I, being called a poet has always been a very weird thing for me. I never set out to write poetry. Um, you know, the day after I wrote this, you came out and it was number one on the Amazon poetry bestseller lists and on iBooks and all these different places. My publisher phoned me and said, you know, you're, you're doing all these things on the poetry bestseller lists. And I kind of went, oh, it's poetry. <laughs> oh, we're calling it poetry. Um, and so, you know, I mean, my goal is always just to write a beautiful book to take the idea of what a book is and kind of break it down mm-hmm. um and so for me there there are these fragments mm-hmm. um, but i'll read this we forget that how a person acts in each moment is not who they are that each person is a series of moments and we cannot judge any moment in isolation and use that moment to define them it is not up to others it is up to us which moments we want to hang on to for good or for bad We forget our successes and enshrine our failures. We forget there is still a child in all of us begging for love. We forget that this is true of every person we meet. We only hear the loudest voices when really we should be listening to the quietest. Thank you. This reminds me of what we were talking about earlier and honoring our younger selves who wrote terrible things in in the journal. And there's a theme of of being kind to yourself, I noticed. Um, and then I watched another interview where you discussed kind of the genesis of this book. You were depressed, going through depression, which a lot mm. of people can relate to. Um, and you pulled over on the side of the road. Am I getting the story right? And yeah. these, these words that ended up in this book came mm. out of you. Yeah. Um, and do you? And, and I know from from another one of your um, articles that it's a practice to, mm. you know, remind us. The name of the article is. Um, the most important thing you forgot to do today, which I think mm. everyone forgets to do, is be kind to ourselves. I, look, I think that right now the world is in this really messed up place. Um, I think if you're here in America or in South Africa or Britain or in New Zealand or anywhere in the world right now, it just feels like we don't know each other. It feels like we don't like each other. And... I think we need to live in a kinder world. And so I think that that starts with being kind to ourselves. You know, this this poem specifically where it says, we forget that how a person acts in each moment is not who they are, that each person is a series of moments, and we cannot judge any moment in isolation and use that moment to define them. 
you know, it's it's not very clear, but this is a comment on this age we live in where the other side, whoever that other side happens to be for you, is demonized, mm-hmm. is is made to look like an enemy, is made to look evil. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's that's courtesy of, of social media. And so, um, you know, my big concern right, right now in the world is what social media seems to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's very scary because I think if you look at the way the algorithms on Facebook and, uh, and Twitter and Instagram work, they prioritize content that you will engage with and you will share and you will comment on. Mm-hmm. And the algorithm has a bias towards things that make you angry. Mm-hmm. And so because it knows, you know, it, well, it doesn't know what's, what the content is, but it knows this specific news article about this person doing this horrible thing mm-hmm. or this specific video of this happening, you know, you're more likely to share it. You're more mm-hmm. likely to comment on it. And so we live in this world where not only are we constantly comparing our behind the scenes to everyone else's highlights reel Mm -hmm. where we're constantly you know have this experience of FOMO but we're also constantly being shown that there is some great other out there that is bad and doesn't like us and is stupid and and social media takes those moments and shows them to us constantly Mm -hmm. and so the world is an angry place and I you know I mean part of the point of the book is to kind of realize that you have a conversation in your head and you and you have a degree of control over that conversation. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that someone who's depressed can suddenly go, oh, mm-hmm. I'm happy. You right, know? Right. But I'm saying that a lot of people go through life not aware that there is a conversation, that they go through life on autopilot. Mm-hmm. And so what I've tried to do with this book of poetry, mm-hmm. if that's what it is, is to try and illustrate different conversations and different things that you might say to yourself or say about other people. Mm-hmm. And it may be if you see it in front of you, you will click in some way. Yes, mm. I love that. It's so true. I feel like we're all suffering, the whole world, for, of this low-grade or not low-grade anxiety. We mm. kind of all have this PTSD. or Something's going on. Yeah. And I'm, I read the Daily Mail every day, and there are more and more stories of people being maybe more outrageous that you know people yeah. biting people on planes and i'm yeah. like what didn't i read last week about someone who bit someone on a plane yeah I'm is like, this what? a new thing <laughs> is this, is this everyone thing? biting everyone right <laughs> and i'm like and i and i think that person who got drunk and bit someone on a plane should not mm. have done that but is if they had um loved themselves and worked on themselves then when they get drunk instead of being mm. an animal they'll mm. be a little bit more human. A little mo- yeah. more human because they love mm. themselves. Yeah. Um, and it's so scary because we live in this pitchfork society where you have mm. one bad moment. Which they, is then immortalized. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think the other aspect of it is, um, you know, there's there there was a really good article in The Atlantic about it a few months ago. Um, but the current generation, Generation Z, is you can see I'm becoming more American. I said Z, <laughs> not Z. Um, but they are the most anxious generation, the most depressed generation, and they're the safest generation because they don't go out. Mm-hmm. They don't. Right. They don't want to get driver's licenses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my my biggest hope is that we will look at social media in ten years time the way we look at smoking Mm -hmm. that we knew something wasn't right and we had to change it because 
there is so much stuff coming out right now about what Facebook is doing, about what Twitter is doing, what Instagram is doing. And these platforms are part of my business model. Mm -hmm. I realize that my career kind of comes from the fact that my work went viral and people responded to it. But that's not as important as having a society that is angry Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And it is such a smoke break. I'll go out to dinner and then after dinner I check my social media. Like people used to go out to dinner and then have a cigarette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could smoke on a plane, you could smoke in a cinema and social media is the same kind of thing Mm -hmm. where, you know, on my phone I have three questions which uh, as the, the wallpaper and it says, what for, why now, what else? And unless I can answer those three questions in terms of why I've taken my phone out, I don't take my phone mm-hmm. out. You know, Another big part of this book is about living with intention. And it's just about being fully present. You know, I've got mm-hmm. kids and my biggest fear is that my daughter tries to ask me something and I'm distracted. You know, right. And I never want her to have that, that experience. I want to be completely present for them. Mm-hmm. I want to be completely present for my wife. You know, and it, when I'm working, I want to be present for mm-hmm. that work. Yes. It's why I don't mm-hmm. own a smartwatch. Yeah. Because I, you know, the, that price of distraction, both in terms of your emotional connections to other people and to the work that you're focusing on, is very high. And people don't realize that they're paying it, I don't think. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this Generation Z is also so Brene Brown? She, I think it was her. She was on Oprah's podcast, and she said we're all suffering from PTSD mm-hmm. after nine eleven. Yeah, and I think this generation, even if they didn't live through it, it's just in the it's in our conversation yeah. always. And I think yeah. there's that combined with social media is making people crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we we evolved to live in societies where you would know roughly ninety nine to hundred people. Over the course mm-hmm. of your entire life. Mm-hmm. And now people I, have 700 Facebook friends. Now, you you know, the reason why you get anxious when you send an email and you might not have said something correctly or you might have offended the person is because a few thousand years ago, the other person liking you was essential to your survival because they might not share food with you mm-hmm. or they might not help you when you get sick. Mm-hmm. But so now you have that obligation to thousands and thousands and thousands of people every single day. Mm-hmm. And that that's going to cause you anxiety. Mm-hmm. The I you know trying to be liked, trying to be accepted. It's um you know, I mean in terms of the the PTSD, you know, I think, you know, I went through like the end of apartheid. Mm-hmm. I saw the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of kids who grew up in the 90s, like we had this very misconstrued idea that we would kind of see liberal democracy take over the entire world. We were at the end of history. Things would slowly start to get better no matter where you were. And that ended on September 11th, mm-hmm. 2001. You know, exactly. that, that mm-hmm. was it. Would, no matter where in the world you were. I was in Cape Town just getting out of college. It was it was a day where everything you assumed about the world was the, the rug was pulled out from underneath you completely, and so yeah, I mean this this generation has grown up out of that, lived through the Great Recession in, in two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. is you know is now being exposed to this world of social media, like it's it's terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying. I um I'm so excited to see the book in print. I loved reading it on my device at home. Um, but I, I, I hope that people read it over and over again because I think there's a therapeutic element mm. to it. And um, I hope they re- – I'm excited to hold it in my hands because yeah. speaking of you know, our devices and social media, and there's something to be said about reading something tangible. Do well, you feel that way? Absolutely. I think 
in in society right now we really miss the artifact which mm -hmm. is why vinyl has made a comeback because you can hold something from a band mm -hmm. you know you can hold a physical thing mm -hmm. if you know if you really wanted to you could go through life living off your ipad completely you could watch netflix you sub subscribe to spotify or apple music you could you know read you know through the ibooks or the kindle app and you would never need to own a single object of entertainment mm -hmm. so true but we're human beings and we like to touch beautiful things you know we we want to hold things and feel them in our in, in our hands and i think that's where books of poetry specifically are quite important because a book of poetry as an artifact is is a powerful thing and it's it's it, you know it, it it's almost it becomes part of your house and part of your room and it's something that you can give to a friend i mean the most the most amazing encounters i ever have at signings are when people bring me one of my books and it's just you know covered in post-it notes and people have written in uh -huh. it and and you can see it's been loved mm, yes, you know yes and and that's like a really powerful thing yeah um so yes i i love a physical book i mean there's nothing wrong with reading an ebook but um i love a beautiful book me too yeah. and there are also so in the book people will see when they when they get their copy um, that there are words that are in a certain formation. There are words that are in different colors. There are words that are in a certain formation. I was thinking if I had the book in my hand, I would, I would be holding it this way yeah. or that way or looking at it differently. Um, so what was the decision to make certain words certain colors? So, you know, we were talking earlier on about um, how I wanted to remind people that there is a conversation going on in your head. Um, and so for me the book represents a conversation. Uh, and so some of the words are in red mm -hmm. to highlight more impassioned things like love or anger or rage or whatever. It doesn't mean they're bad. Mm -hmm. And then the blue is there to highlight the kind of softer emotions and to say that there's these two sides to you. And you'll notice like in the setup for the different poems, there's kind of this question and answer um, kind of thing mm -hmm. where the different colors and those questions and answers make the book like it was in my head where mm -hmm. it's it's a series of, of conversations and a series of you know dialogues um i've you know i i say it quite often the job the job of a writer and especially a poet is just to listen a lot of the time because you do have everyone has a running monologue mm -hmm. in their head and you've just got to kind of pick out the bits of it right um that are powerful and can become something um so when you sent it to your editor, did you have those colors highlighted? And yeah, okay. Yeah, and and the um, the pictures that were certain where you you I did that. typed that. Yeah, I yeah, typed that, that way. Yeah, I you know I I think for me, you know I I care fundamentally about how the book looks mm -hmm. and feels. Um, I you know I did the cover with a designer friend of mine. Um, I did all the illustrations myself, um, and. You know, I, I like to keep like very tight control over over how it feels because then you know the entire thing is a creative expression, you mm -hmm. know, as opposed to you know just the words or or, right. or something like that. It's yeah. almost like it's art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you want it to be an object of art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to someone, budding artists, writers, or otherwise? It's it's a bit tough. Um, and this comes back to our earlier conversation, I think. I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, 
write something every single day and try and, and you know and be authentically yourself and 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 try and do something that no one else is doing and do that every single day and your audience will find you i'd love to be able to give that that, that advice today but there's a lot of creative people in a very strange situation right now again with social media mm-hmm. um you know we you know, we rely on our work being disseminated and, and, you know, people finding it and building an audience. Mm -hmm. But the way that the algorithms on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook work, you're getting this strange generation of writers and creators who are effectively creating stuff, um, not for the audience or even themselves, they're writing stuff for algorithms. And some of them are doing it better than others. Um, And so... You know, I'm I'm really worried that the advice today is figure out what the right hashtags are, or figure out what the best time to post is, or, and it's you know it's these arbitrary kind of rules written by some company you know in in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and and that's really scary for me. I mean, I look, I was talking to a musician friend of mine the 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 other night. Um, and he was saying that the exact same thing is going on with Spotify, where you've got these young musicians who are effectively trying to write music for an algorithm. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and you know he he's a lot more idealistic than me. He was saying, no, you know, give that advice. Say, be authentically true. You know, be innovative. Try and do something something else. So and he was saying, write for the algorithm, or write for. Yourself? He was saying, do some. Don't write for the algorithm. Okay, ignore right, the right. ignore the yes, algorithm. Yes. I have to think that we'll that we'll get through it. That, that, that there, there is something on the other side of all of all of this, and that originality and innovation and and all of that is rewarded. Mm-hmm. I, I hope it is. Mm-hmm. But right now, we live in this in this strange place where the internet, as it was, doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, because if your work doesn't exist on Twitter, if it doesn't exist on Instagram or Facebook, it doesn't exist mm-hmm. anywhere. No one reads blogs. Mm-hmm. You know, no one goes mm-hmm. to websites. We stay within these very, very narrowly defined silos. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think young young creators have to navigate around that. Um, and I think that will require originality, and it will require a way to to beat the machines effectively. Yes, yeah. it'll happen. I hope so. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> I I hope so too. We've been. Um, bashing social media but where can everyone find you uh real ian s thomas uh is the name across all the different um platforms and that's i-a-i-n-s-t-h-o-m-a-s um yeah i mean look like i said i understand that my career and everything else depends on these platforms right now Mm -hmm. but it's it's maddening it is but there'll be a the good will rise up. The right thing will happen, I believe. You see, that's because you were also born at a certain point. And you also had that exposure to optimism in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, we have to hope. Yes, absolutely. And um, if people want to put their phones aside for a while and see you in person again, it's mm. the last bookstore. Uh, so, yes, it's at 7.30 p.m. tomorrow night at the last bookstore in downtown L.A. Then I'm in San Francisco on the 3rd. 
and I'm in Seattle on the 4th. And if you go to the Real ENS Thomas Facebook page, all the details are there for that. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. This was awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you. And to everyone uh, watching or listening, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And I'm Fern Ronay on all social media at Fern Ronay. From executive producers Kevin Undergaro, Maria Menounos, and Jeffrey Masters, thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, you can tweet us at Book Circle On. This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in.